2: Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna.
1: And I'm Amber. And we're starting off the show this week with a new segment where we read a couple of reviews from you, our lovely listeners.
2: Yeah, so number one from A La Bibliohec, U A La Bibliohec. They say, Anna and Amber do an amazing job of making even the most obscure topics approachable, relevant, and hilarious. It's always a treat to see what they'll feature next. This podcast should be in the regular lineup of anyone who loves history, science, and good fun.
1: Mm. Aww. Oh, and then we've got one more from Hyracula, which is that like a little like vampire hyrax.
2: I was kind of hoping it would be a Benicula, was, but hyrax. And you're like, eh. <laughs> The little front toothers.
1: <laughs> oh. So yeah. this supernatural creature says a must for anyone interested in archaeology. The topics are always fascinating, and Anna and Amber have great friend chemistry. I agree. Friend chemistry that leaves, uh, leaves me giggling <laughs> along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's bad. <laughs> I don't want that. Uh, that leaves me giggling along with them half the time. What about the other half?
2: The other half, they're they're nodding solemnly oh, as we make learning. excellent points. Yes. Mm, yes. Mm. Thank you so much to all of you who have left reviews. Each one really means a lot to us. We read them and we do take your comments to heart. We should. So sure yeah. We they take said, every comment to heart. All oh, especially boy. me. Uh, <laughs> well, let's uh let's dive into this episode, huh?
1: Yeah. So Anna, it is yes. so very close to Spooktober. It's coming. <laughs>
2: Which is exactly why I've chosen this week's episode topic, warding off evil. I am going to spend the next month being told very spooky stories from the world of archaeology and anthropology. So I am gathering my fortitude and girding my mental loins that went to a weird place. Anyway, this week we're talking about some of the ways that people in different times and places protected themselves against the things they feared.
1: Yeah, save those loins for dirt after dark. <laughs> no, my mental loins, not my actual loins. <laughs> <Gross>. Let's <laughs> Let's start off with a word we're probably going to throw around a lot in this episode. Apotropaic. It comes from the Greek apotropane, to ward off, from apo, meaning away, and tropane, to turn. So... Yeah. An apotropaic object, image, or action is one that is intended to ward off something unwanted, to sort of deflect it. Mm -hmm. So before we dive in, we should talk about the types of places, actions, or facets of life that are commonly viewed across many cultures as being vulnerable to evil. Like Twitter. (laughs) All right. I mean, you're not wrong. And when we say evil, that's within the framework of each individual culture and encompasses actual named gods or spirits or more nebulous forces of bad luck or like ill will. Um, So these include... It's a range. Yeah. A continuum. Mm. So these include doorways and windows, uh, the idea of a threshold that evil could pass over... Uh, Similarly, chimneys and fireplaces were often places to be warded, not just because they were openings from the outside world to the domestic space inside, but also fireplaces can be real sources of danger if you have just like an open hearth in your home. Yeah. Um, In a house we lived in when I was little, we had a boarded up chimney and a bunch of swallows got in it. Oh, no. (laughs) That was pretty scary. I don't know. My parents didn't tell me. I feel like they went to like a swallow farm upstate. Oh boy. But I don't know. Yikes. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> um, so other spaces like sacred spaces, even though like the sacredness of this, the place may have been protective in itself, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so yourself, your person. Yep. You can protect your person by uh, doing things like ri- like rituals. Um, Mm -hmm. eating or drinking things such as, uh, so these would be like apotropaic plants or potions or stuff like that
2: we're going to talk about apotropaic plants in a little bit
1: Mm -hmm. or wearing protective items like amulets one of the most well known origin stories of an apotropaic character or image is the Greek myth of Perseus and Medusa in which Medusa is theoretically the villain but also really gets the short end of the stick so content note Sexual assault. Yep. Just heads up. Um, Medusa, also sometimes called Gorgo, was a Gorgon. She and her two sisters are variously described as winged or snake-bodied, or both, uh, with snakes in place of hair. If they looked you directly in the eye, you'd be turned to stone. The Gorgons were the daughters of a brother-sister pair of chthonic monsters, Forkis. Not not, Not,
2: not Forkis. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what a and, bad movie. And Kato, not, not the diet. It's spelled Keto. Yeah, it's, it's it's spelled like Keto. Yeah, not, not the diet. And remember, chthonic monsters are those which come from the earth, the ground. Under. Yeah. The earliest representations of Medusa show her as a monster with snake hair, giant staring eyes, and terrifying teeth. But by the 5th century BCE, she started to be described as both terrifying and beautiful. Kind of like Tilda Swinton.
2: I guess she's not that terrifying, but like she has those angles. Ah, yes. Non-Euclidean
1: angles to her face. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) In 490 BCE, the lyric poet Pindar wrote an ode to fair-cheeked Medusa. Mm -hmm. In later versions of the myth, like in Ovid's Metamorphoses, Medusa was originally a beautiful woman who was then raped by Poseidon in Athena's temple, which was an offense to the goddess. Yeah. Instead of being mad at Poseidon, though, Athena took her wrath out on Medusa, changing her hair to snakes and making her face so terrible to behold that anyone who looked upon it would be turned to stone. In most versions of the story, Medusa is beheaded by a hunky hero, Perseus, who, frankly, kind of cheated. He had a bunch of help from the gods, winged shoes from Hermes, who is Mercury in the Roman pantheon, a... right... Yes. Hermes? Okay, great. For Hermes five, equals I, Mercury. Yes. I blanked. I blanked.
2: A I know, and this is my fault, because in the script I'm going back and forth between yeah. Latin and Greek god names, and Amber
1: is having none of it. I'm translating on the fly. A reflective <laughs> shield from Athena, who's Minerva in the mm-hmm. Roman Pantheon. So he wouldn't have to look directly at a gorgon. Um, a sword from a sword. <laughs> to sword. A sword. A, a sword from Hephaestus, who is Vulcan, Vulcan in the Roman pantheon. And mm-hmm. a helmet of invisibility from Hades, who is Saturn. Neptune. What? It's not Neptune, it's Pluto. Pluto. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get I didn't get far enough out there. Um, <laughs> no. Meanwhile, Medusa was pregnant with Poseidon's children, and when Perseus lopped off her head, the winged horse Pegasus sprang from her neck, while Crisaur. or something. <laughs> Crisaur. A giant wielding a golden sword, hence the Chris in that name. Yep. Uh, golden. Sp- sprang from her body, which totally makes sense. That's how that works. Yep. So, Perseus fixed Medusa's head to the front of Athena's shield and then gave it back to Athena. Despite having been removed from her body, the head still had petrification powers and was handy to have in a fight. That's um, the aegis.
2: So if you hear Mm -hmm. the phrase, something is under the aegis of something else, um, that is what the aegis originally was.
1: Yeah. So Medusa's head, iconographically, has the power to repel enemies. Viewed in a modern Western context by two liberal arts educated podcasters. So. Hi. Hello. Uh, Medusa's story is a tragic one. Nevertheless, she persisted as an apotropaic device that is found all over in imagery from the classical world. There's another
2: apotropaic device related to the idea of Medusa that appears in the classical world, but there are also examples of this from ancient Egypt and even the Viking world, and that's eyes. So if you've heard the phrase giving someone the evil eye, it has a deeper meaning than just glaring at them. It's not just stink eye. This is from a 2018 BBC culture article by Quinn Hargate. quote, when it comes to warding off the mystic malevolent forces of the world, there is perhaps no charm more recognized or renowned than the evil eye ubiquitous in its use. The striking image of the cobalt blue eye has appeared not only in the bazaars of Istanbul, but everywhere from the sides of planes to the pages of comic books. What they're talking about is that blue bead with a lighter blue and white kind of bullseye pattern or eyeball pattern that you see a lot on bracelets from Middle Eastern shops or in tourist markets in Mediterranean countries. The article then went on to talk about how Kim Kardashian and Gigi Hadid are using this imagery in their fashion lines. But I skipped that because it does not interest me but it, whatsoever.
1: But it does make sense, like given their own yeah. um, backgrounds in like being no, Armenian it does. and Palestinian, respectively.
2: It is something that is not, it's not appropriation of that symbol, it's just the use of it. To understand the origins of the evil eye, one must first understand the distinction between the amulet and the evil eye itself. Though often dubbed as the evil eye, the ocular amulet, sure, is actually the charm meant to ward off the true evil eye, which is a curse transmitted through a malicious glare, usually one inspired by envy. Though the Amulet, often referred to as a Nazar, has existed in various permutations for thousands of years, the curse which it repels is far older and more difficult to trace." In essence, the curse of the evil eye is not a complicated concept. It stems from the belief that someone who achieves great success or recognition also attracts the envy of those around them. That envy in turn manifests itself as a curse that will undo their good fortune. It's kind of like the stories that you hear of the statistics of people who win the lottery and then the amount that their lives immediately go downhill. That kind of idea. Uh, the concept is well captured by Heliodorus of Emesa in the ancient Greek romance Ethiopica, in which he writes, quote, When anyone looks at what is excellent with an envious eye, he fills the surrounding atmosphere with a pernicious quality and transmits his own envenomed exhalations into whatever is nearest to him. End quote. Maybe the earliest description of harshing one's mellow. Yeah, bad vibes. Bad vibes, dude. The belief in this curse spans cultures as well as generations. To date, one of the most exhaustive compilations of legends regarding the evil eye is, book club recommendation, Frederick Thomas Elworthy's The Evil Eye, colon, the classic account of an ancient superstition. So we've got the world cat entry for that. We will put it up on the show notes. Elworthy explores instances of the symbol in a number of cultures, from the petrifying gaze of Greek gorgons to Irish folktales of men able to bewitch horses with a single stare. Virtually every culture has a legend related to the evil eye. The eye symbol is so deeply embedded in culture that, in spite of its potentially pagan connotations, it even finds a place within religious texts, including the Bible and the Quran. Some examples of this imagery in various places Eyes are painted on ancient Greek kylixes, which are drinking vessels. They're these wide saucer-shaped cups, and when you tilt the cup up to drink from it, your face is covered. But don't worry, the painted eyes are there in place of yours, so no bad vibes get the wrong idea. Fishing boats in the Mediterranean region will sometimes have stylized eyes painted at the prow of the boat. Viking ships often had toothy, bug-eyed monster figureheads or just stylized versions of their faces and eyes on their bows in his sermon on the mount jesus of nazareth you may have heard of him makes reference to one of the oldest beliefs in the ancient world the malignity of an evil eye in matthew 6 22 and 23 so chapter 6 verse 22 and 23 quote if however your eye is evil your entire body will be full of darkness end quote with such an ardent and widespread belief that a stare held the power to inflict catastrophic m- misfortune, it's no surprise that the people of these ancient civilizations sought out a means to repel it, which led to the earliest iterations of the Nazar amulet that we know today. Dr. Neze Yildiran, an art history professor at Istanbul's Bakıshehir University, says that the earliest known version of eye amulets goes back to 3300 BCE. Examples were excavated in Tel Brak, one of the oldest cities of Mesopotamia, which is in modern-day Syria. They are in the form of some abstract alabaster idols made with incised eyes. What's most fascinating about the evil eye isn't in its mere longevity, but the fact that its usage has deviated little over the course of millennia. Turkish airline planes have the evil eye symbol painted on their tail fins in the same way that the Egyptians, Greeks and Etruscans painted the eye on the prows of their ships to ensure safe passage and it's still a tradition in Turkey to bring an evil eye token to newborn babies echoing the belief that young children are often the most susceptible to the curse.
1: Ah, and this makes me this makes me think of another amulet that you just you give to like newborn babies or expectant mothers in the ancient world. That Lamashtu pendant. Oh, Lamashtu. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that was that was an amulet that would be worn. The an idea is that perhaps it was worn suspended over the 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 belly. Yeah. Mm,
2: Like on an especially long string.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like a longer like a a longer necklace and or um, suspended over where the the child would be sleeping as just like a. Just like Just a giving big like, ups to Lamash yeah. too, so that yeah. she will avoid your, your, your little family. One.
2: So let's take a very quick ad break and then recipes.
0: <laughs> it's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Kulturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's CulturoMedia.com for all our live events and more. KulturoMedia.com. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
1: We're back and welcome to maybe the worst cooking show on the planet. I don't know. I've seen some stuff on YouTube. (laughs) Or at least the stinkiest, because it seems that many of the plants used to ward off evil are just as good at warding off anyone else because they're pungent or unpleasant smell. Listeners, you may know that garlic traditionally repels vampires, but great news. Um, It can also take care of gin, fairies, and... The all or the hull.
2: So I don't know how to pluralize that. Alls or hulls. (laughs) It's a specific kind of demon.
1: Okay, great. Oh, I see see where we're going here. Okay. Um, These are demons who specifically interfere in childbirth, as if you didn't have enough to worry about there. Yeah. We're in the world of Persian mythology, where offensive smell is a key apotropaic property. For surefire protection against various and nefarious demons, spirits, or other beings, put the following on your shopping list. So first up, we've got Wild Rue. Or Harmal. Yep. <laughs> Maybe Harmal. I don't know. <laughs> the, the botanical name is Paganum harmala, a wild mm-hmm. evergreen plant native to Western Asia and the Mediterranean. So you are quoting
2: a um, an article called Apotropaic Plants in the Persian Folk Culture by
1: uh, Payman Matin. Matin writes, uh, <laughs> having a volatile oil, Harmal is of a tang smell. And a virulent smack. I really enjoyed that. Sounds like my signature scent. Um,
2: Virulent smack.
1: (laughs) It also contains... Also your
2: signature move. Yeah. Catch these hands.
1: (laughs) It also contains some compounds that are hallucinogenic, so possession of the plant or seeds is illegal in some places. Um, But also, if you're you're burning it in an attempt to ward off some evil and you inhale some of it, you may really see some stuff, so... Um, so, garlic and onion, they are delicious. They can also be consumed for various protective purposes or hung dried in doorways to protect households. Um, and the skins of onions can be burned to ward off gin. Get that gin skin. Ew. Mm. <laughs> asafoetida which is the dried resin from a number of plants in the ferula family of perennial herbs, <laughs> um, yep. Asafetida has a pungent sulphurous smell, lending it the trivial name of "stinking gum." But in cooked dishes, it delivers a smooth flavor reminiscent of leeks or other onion relatives, um, and the odor dissipates upon cooking. Yeah, it's in a lot of
2: Indian dishes. Is where yeah. I've seen it most in recipes.
1: I yeah, I've I've consumed it, and I never knew how to say it.
2: Yeah, as asafetida. Apparently. I've also heard it pronounced as, asafetida, but. That makes less sense to me.
1: Um, Asafarida is also known variously as food of the devils or devil's dung. Gross. Speaking of gross, we have a collection of just <laughs> leave Just let that hang. I wanted to put some space between me and that publication. That's fair. Um, a collection of food and or kitchen superstitions, mostly of Western, being European and or Judeo Christian origin,
2: on um. brand. <laughs> Look, <Hey>.
1: bon appetit <laughs> needs to get their act together.
2: <laughs> right. But but this was an interesting set of things, so I included it.
1: Yeah, eggs symbolize fertility. So farmers would scatter broken eggs into their fields, hoping they would bring forth an abundant crop. Um, so this, this also helps from a farming perspective, because if your soil has a high pH, eggshells are made out of calcium carbonate, which would neutralize some of that acid. Chemistry. Wow. <laughs> Just like us. This article's got chemistry. Yeah. Oh, man, I killed it. Um, <laughs> I I neutralized some. Of them. <laughs> you oh, that neutralized answer. that joke. <laughs> also, if you break open an egg and find two yolks, that means someone you know will be getting married or having twins. Or you're just having like a bonus breakfast, which is nice in on its own. And when you're cracking your egg, make sure to crush the eggshell afterward. Otherwise, legend has it a witch will gather up the pieces, set sail, and cause terrible storms at sea. I love. What's the implication that she's just like she's got a boat she's ready to go she's just waiting to watch you huh here's something that um anna may have seen me do because i do this i do it too i don't have yeah. any reason i just do it i'm gonna give you a reason oh okay it's more threatening than i meant it uh, <laughs> spilling salt i'm going to tell you a reason <laughs> Uh, spilling salt is thought to be bad luck, but you can remedy it by taking a pinch and throwing it over your left, your sinister shoulder, where the devil lurks to blind him and drive him away. So your in Latin, la- uh, left is
2: sinister, right mm-hmm. is dexter, which is where sinister as in like devious or, or evil comes from because there was, um, handedness bias, <laughs> <laughs> In ancient times, yeah. left-handed people were thought to be um, instruments of the devil, which is deeply unfair. Yeah. It also is where you get the
1: Spanish word for left. Um, Sinistra. Yeah. If you cut open a loaf of bread and see a hole, I mean like a large air bubble, that means somebody will <laughs> die soon. <laughs> Can you imagine living in a time when this was
2: like really deeply part of your held beliefs and you would like cut open a bread and you're like, ah!
1: Sorry to like mention that to all of our listeners who are really into like the like sour sourdough dough game yeah. during the quarantine. No, if you
2: cut open a loaf of bread and see a hole, it means that you have a well aerated dough. Good job. It also so, will mean that anything you spread on that toast is going to fall right through, which is which is kind of sad. Um,
1: but also, the hole in the bread represents a coffin. Mm-hmm. You can deal with this by cutting a cross into the top of your loaf before baking otherwise (laughs) otherwise the devil will sit on it and ruin your
2: loaf is the devil my cat who likes to put her butt on all my
1: stuff (laughs) why
2: is the devil going and putting his
1: butt on stuff such as loaves of bread and tacks wait tacks because i've got the joy 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 down in my heart where down in my heart where down in my so like and if the devil doesn't like it he can sit on a tack Oh, if he this does, not that's like go boil a, your head or
2: like go jump in a lake, like go sit on a tack.
1: This was this is part of my Sunday school. <laughs> was this school. a
2: childhood singy songy time?
1: It this is specifically in Sunday school because mm. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in, down in, my in your heart. where heart, where down in my heart, where um <laughs> down in my heart to stay. Oh, good, 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 good. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. Where? Sit on a tack. Where? Sit on a tack. Oh, I, forget. I forget what I happens went, after that. I went to Hebrew school. You're giving me nothing here. That's, <laughs> I, I'm getting really into the call and response after doing that song. This is, <laughs> you got noodles. Where? Wait. <laughs> In China. Long noodles symbolize a long life. So you should never cut your noodles. That means you're cutting life short. Instead, you <laughs> should slurp up long noodles without breaking them. Um, you should never hand a hot pepper directly to a friend. Mm-mm. Superstitious has it that this will bring discord into the friendship. I keep trying to bring discord into this friendship, but like you just keep using. As Zoom. in you're trying to get us on
2: discord <laughs> yeah. and I don't understand what it great is because joke. I'm a million years old.
1: <laughs> no, I, I'm a good joke. Um. Or if you really want to end a friendship, just go ahead and jam that jalapeno into their eye. Where? Into their eye, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is which takes us back to the beginning of our friendship when I kinda, oh no. <laughs> when I cut all those jalapenos in the dining hall and I didn't use lemon juice to like cut the oil. And then I took my contacts out. And, yeah,
2: I don't think you use gloves either. I, not no, not from right, like a hygiene perspective. I, but didn't, like, I
1: didn't use gloves and then I didn't use lemon juice to like get it off my fingers. And then yeah. I took my contacts out and my eyes burned. Oh. And then I put my contacts back in the next day. Oh, I wear glasses now. <laughs> um, and then lastly, we got great timing because like right now at this moment, it's Rosh Hashanah Ean. Ean. Hashanah to anyone who celebrates. So in the Jewish New Year, people dip apples into honey to symbolize the hopes of a sweet year to come. Speaking of Jewish traditions, spitting or making a spitting noise three times is a way of warding off misfortune, especially in response to praise or a lucky thing happening. Um, and this is not just is something; Lots of people do.
2: Yeah, it's, it's something that specifically my grandmother used to do. And I didn't really know the context for a while. So it's just like, why does grandma make that noise sometimes? <laughs>
1: <Aww>. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh-huh. um, the idea is that if bad luck is following the good, you want to avoid it. Three is a especially powerful number in Jewish numerology, plus if you're spitting like 18 times after any good or bad thing that happens, it's gonna get kind of ridiculous and probably <laughs> and you'll see You're gonna see diminishing returns. <laughs> Not to
2: mention just a general moistness of existence. This next segment is something that I'm really glad that we get the chance to talk about in, I mean, this episode is fun no matter what, but I'm really glad that we get a chance to talk about this as something of a PSA and as information that our listeners can pass along gently to anyone who needs it. We never want to be preachy on the show. Rather, we try to bring up issues so that our listeners are aware of them and can make decisions accordingly. So I want to talk about smudging. And the resources that I pulled for this come from Huffington Post, Bustle, and Beauty Independent. Smudging, the ancient Native American practice of burning dried plants in spiritual ceremonies, has been made common by the non-Native population, spreading it to yoga studios, beauty companies, and wellness boxes. Smudging's popularity is in line with the larger trend in the beauty and wellness industry of melding the spiritual and the physical. A modern commoditized version of spirituality has taken the form of products promising salvation from the psychological ravages of high-tech society and a magical reconnection to the balance of the natural world. Today's beauty and wellness regimens include crystals and white sage wands to banish negative thoughts interfering with achieving one's most optimal self. Capitalizing on people's search for meaning amid societal discontent, companies are wooing beauty and wellness consumers with curated spiritual wellness kits. Their packages contain white sage and other dried plants and crystals and candles, as well as guidance on how to use the items to achieve desired outcomes. There are more than 500 federally recognized Native American tribes in the United States that burn a wide variety of dried plants for smudging practices. The plants incorporated into smudging are are usually harvested on their lands. California tribes use white sage, or salvia apiana, which is native to the region. It's the plant most popular for smudging among non-native people. Over-harvesting by wild crafters for sale to retail chain stores and brands is threatening the survival of white sage. Although not listed as an endangered species, it's considered to be a plant of special concern by conservationists and illegal to harvest from public lands. Alicia Good Soldier of the Dine and Spirit Lake Dakota nations says, quote, this is a medicine for many of our people who have used these plants since time immemorial as central elements of our spirituality and healing. They're having trouble finding sage because of fires and overharvesting, end quote. Yeah. And especially um, since the the fires here in in sort of central California have been really devastating to a lot of just sort of swaths of land around here. So it's it's a real problem. Other indigenous smudging practices use tobacco, sweetgrass, cedar, and resins like copal, which is still used for sacred purposes in Mesoamerica today. I wanted to take this opportunity to bring this to our listeners' attention and to give a more specific definition to smudging to give the whole practice context. Ruth Hopkins, a Dakota Lakota Sioux writer, says, quote, it was illegal for natives to practice their religion until... Okay, here's a date. 1978. Mm-hmm. That's C. so very recent. CE. Until 1978 in the U.S., and many were jailed and killed just for keeping our ways alive, including my great-great-grandfather, end quote. And so we'll also include in the show notes text of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, which is the law that was passed in 1978. Smudging is part of those practices, it's so important to certain indig- indigenous cultures that native people are fighting to be able to perform it in hospitals. Smudging, therefore, is not to be taken lightly. For Hopkins, the appropriation of sage is made worse because the plant is often not being harvested correctly. She says, quote, when using medicinal plants, it's important that the plant is used sustainably. When we pick sage, we always leave the root and say a prayer of thanks for our harvest. This is as much a part of smudging or saging as burning the plant is, end quote. To explain further, it's important to leave the root because that's how the plant grows back. If someone is harvesting white sage and doesn't know to leave the root, they're preventing more plants from growing. Like I said, we're not here to yuck anybody's yums, but we do always want to provide information for practices that may have been taken from other cultures so that you, our listeners, can make informed decisions. And don't worry, if you are interested in kind of this ritual, but you don't belong to indigenous groups, there is a simple alternative. If you have used herbs to cleanse your space in the past and you enjoy the ritual, you don't have to give it up in order to do so in a culturally conscious way.
1: And environmentally conscious. Yes. Like
2: just... Just sustainability. Yeah. Yeah. Smudging refers to a specific healing cultural spiritual practice. Smoke cleansing, on the other hand, can look a lot like smudging. It's just the simple act of burning herbs, wood, incense, or other safe-to-burn materials that possess unique cleansing properties. To you, the person who's doing it. The smoke is then waved over the area you want to cleanse. Some cultures may have spiritual practices connected to smoke cleansing, but the act itself is not inherently spiritual or specific to a certain culture, like smudging is. So if smoke cleansing is something that makes you feel calm, clean, or centered, then go for it. It's important, however, that as part of that process, you're respecting indigenous cultures and the land's ecosystem. That may mean harvesting your own sage or other herbs sustainably, contacting brands to ask them to stop selling white sage without giving due to native cultures, or choosing another material for your own use. So let's take one more quick break and then wrap things up.
1: And we're moving on to a different part of the world to talk about gri and voodoo. gri, also spelled <laughs> gri, <gris-gris>, without S's. <laughs> and sometimes also Gregory or uh, Gregory.
2: Which is how I intend to pronounce all names of people named Gregory.
1: <laughs> the actor, Gregory Rush. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Gregory. Uh, these oh, are all a type of voodoo amulet originating in Africa. Uh, so before we really get into this, let's have a brief disclaimer. Doo-doo-doo. The history, permutations and perceptions of voodoo are complicated, and we're not going to go too deeply into that here. That topic is something that deserves its own episode, preferably with a guest expert who can guide us through it. Hint. Hi. know anybody? <laughs> anybody out there? Hello? But this is a small piece of that puzzle and one that fits nicely into our theme this week. So we didn't want to leave it out. So a Gregory Talisman is believed to protect the wearer from evil or bring luck. In some West African countries, it's still used as a method of birth control. It consists of a small cloth bag, usually inscribed with verses from an African ancestor containing a ritual number of small objects worn on the person. The gree-gree originated in Dagomba in Ghana and was associated with Islamic traditions. Originally, the gree-gree was adorned with Islamic scripture and was used to ward off evil spirits, like or Jinn, um, or bad luck. Historians of the time noted that they were frequently worn by non-believers and believers alike and were also found attached to buildings. Yeah, sort of like a mezuzah,
2: hmm. which is... Attached to doorways, which is one of those things, one of those liminal
1: spaces that often needs to mm-hmm. be warded. Yeah. The practice of using grigri, though originating in Africa, came to the United States with enslaved Africans and was quickly adopted by practitioners of voodoo. However, the practice soon changed and the grigri were thought to bring black magic upon their, quote, their so-called victim. Um Enslaved people would often use the gri against their owners, and some can still be some can still be seen adorning their tombs. A synonym for gri is mojo; both translate roughly to fetish or charm. In the Caribbean, an almost identical African-derived bag is called a wanga or okay a wanga, either spelled with a W or an O in the French way. Bag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a bag but that term is uncommon in the u.s the word conjure might also describe these objects and is an older alternative to hoodoo which is a direct variation of african-american folklore so conjure there is a is a noun not a verb Mm -hmm. so a conjure a conjure yes because of this a conjure hand is also considered a hoodoo bag usually made by a respected community conjure doctor the word hand in this context is defined as a combination of ingredients. The term may derive from the use of finger and hand bones from the dead in mojo bags, or from ingredients such as the lucky hand root, which is favored by gamblers. The latter gotta, suggests an no analogy. Hold them. P- oh, <laughs> the latter suggests an analogy between the varied bag ingredients and the several cards that make up a hand in card games. Although most southern-style conjure bags are made of red flannel material, most seasoned conjurers use color symbolism. This practice embodies itself in the practice of hoodoo, in which green flannel is used for a money mojo, white flannel is used for a baby blessing mojo, red flannel is used for a love mojo, and so on. West Indians also use mojo bags, but often use leather instead of flannel. The contents of each bag vary directly with the aim of the conjurer. Ingredients can include roots, herbs, animal parts, minerals, coins, crystals, good luck tokens, and carved amulets. The more personalized objects are used to add extra power because of their symbolic value. Yeah,
2: this is one of the reasons why I really want someone to come on the show and talk us through voodoo and charms and that and that whole thing. Because as I was researching this, about 90 percent of the things I was finding were like, do you want to buy these things? It was like shops selling Mm. mojo bags or hoodoo bags or, you know, instead of scholarly things Mm -hmm. for these terms, I was just like, oh, help me. Um, But yeah, I thought that was neat and an example of um warding off things or trying to attract other desired forces um from a part of the world where we don't usually go and on this show so yeah not often was, enough yeah exactly um and lastly i wanted to talk about one more type of protective object so amber we've talked about witch bottles before on the show but have you heard of witch balls What ha- have you no. Okay. I'm going with no. I'm going no. to tell you about them. I'm going to tell you about them. A witch ball is a hollow sphere of colored glass traditionally used as a fishing float. Modern witch balls are decorative replicas. Floating glass buoys became connected with witches during the witch hunts in England. In the late 17th century, suspected witches were tried by being tied up and thrown into water. If the Oh, water rejected th- I'm sure this will never come up again on our show. Absolutely not. If the water rejected them from what was considered a second baptism and they floated, as humans are known to do, in water, then the suspects were confirmed as witches under rule of trial by water, and they were then hanged by the neck until dead. In the same way, these heavy glass fishing floats, all tied up in a net, could not be made to sink, on account of all that air in there the water rejected them and they bobbed merrily upon its surface historically witch balls were hung in cottage windows in 17th and 18th century england to ward off evil spirits which is evil spells ill fortune and bad spirits so evil spirits and bad spirits
1: hmm. i mean yeah, yeah. some of the evil some that just you know
2: some that just want to spirits yeah. of circumstance
1: just like...
2: <laughs> down on their luck spirits <laughs> Just as hanging a witch was believed to remove evil influences from a village, hanging a tried and tested witch ball that had been floating in water around a home was believed to protect the home from similar ills. And usage has continued in parts of England and even to a smaller extent in America up till the present day. Not as small an extent as I think this author believes. The word witch ball may be a corruption of watch ball because it was used to ward off guard against evil spirits. They may be hung in an eastern window, placed on top of a vase, unclear why, or suspended by a cord from the mantle or from rafters. They may also be placed on sticks in windows or hung in rooms where inhabitants wanted to ward off evil. In the Ozark Mountains, another kind of witch ball is made from black hair that is rolled with beeswax into a hard, round pellet about the size of a marble and is used in curses. In Ozark folklore, a witch that wants to kill someone will take this hairball and throw it at the intended victim, which I really enjoy. The idea of someone being like doink.
1: A little ball. I every time I hear something about the Ozarks, other than mm-hmm. that show, which does yeah. not interest me, I'm so interested because the Ozarks are like very I'm gonna, similar. I'm I know. they uh, very right similar there. to the Appalachians in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Uh, and so I just. Mm, so interesting. Speaking well. The Appalachians. Excellent. Yeah, Tell me for,
2: why. Thanks for <laughs> lifting me right up onto my segue. In the Appalachian Mountains, specifically of Kentucky, Tradition holds that witch balls were made by rolling cow or horse hair into a small ball. A witch would draw a picture of the intended victim, then throw the ball at the part of the victim they wished to injure. Which seems a lot safer than trying to run up to someone and curse them by going, nah, throwing something at them. Just just draw a picture.
1: You know, if the show Ozark Lark were about that, I'd be way more into it. Yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> just... All right.
2: We gonna get silly. I we're, found we're... a great article from... 2018 titled spheres of influence the magical history of the witch ball (laughs) and i enjoyed it and i learned a lot from it but this is the this is going to be the kind of thing that either makes you (laughs) my co-host giggle or get really mad and i'm not sure which it's going to be so let's roll those dice oh no oh no Initially, the witch ball was a decorative object. Its earliest antecedents were the broad plates of round-colored glass placed around the gardens of early modern gentlemen and women for the sun to play upon. This marks the beginning of the witch ball as garden ornament, its main use in continental Europe. German and Austrian versions, sometimes simply called kugel, which I don't know what that means, but why does it also mean noodle pudding? My dad sent me a photo of the kugel that he made for Rosh Hashanah today. And I don't understand the connection. Anyway, those kugel were commercially blown from the 1840s onward and placed on wire poles, driven into flower beds, or set atop walls and fences. In some parts of Britain, these imports can still be seen.
0: Kugel American witch
2: ball. Oh, it means oh. Huh. Then why? It's not a ball of noodles. That's confusing. American witch balls, which date to the mid-19th century, were placed upon flared, rimmed vessels such as pitchers and jars in order to keep insects out, which is a totally practical use for them. I understand that. It might also keep evil out, though, so sure. Witch balls became immensely popular in the 1930s. They were sold in well-to-do boutiques and were a common feature in women's magazines. To many, they were an antidote to modernity and evoked a, quote, Gentle Victorianism. The Sphere magazine, there's a magazine about them, recommended faded chintz chair covers and a witch ball to impart a degree of charm to one's cottage by the sea. Oh. Some <laughs> some people planted their witch balls to make terrariums, which that that's fun. Others filled them with rocks, great glass beads, great and water to create shimmering light effects. Ah, oh, it's like the earliest disco ball. This latter caprice was marketed as the wizard bowl in every respect, the same as a witch ball, but with a larger opening at the top.
1: Uh, Would you guys it, come see my
2: wizard bowl?
1: That's patriarchy for you. <laughs> I
2: got something, something, glass ball ceiling. The oldest example of a witch ball that makes explicit reference to its magical protective properties is in the National Museum of Ireland, and so the tag reads, A fine old sapphire blue glass witch ball, to be suspended from ceilings and dot dot dot, supposed to ward off evil spirits and witches. English, circa 1800. Like many other apotropaic objects, the balls were usually placed at liminal points within the home, such as windows or doorways. The hollow transparency of witch balls is important, as their evil averting function was dependent, in some cases, upon their contents. One source from the 1930s records a belief that the ball should be filled with tiny pieces of wool, since it was believed that no witch could cast an evil eye on the owner until she had counted every single bit of wool in the house.
1: Oh, I thought it's because <laughs> she was like vegan.
2: Oh, I can't go it's in here. Like,
1: it's just like, oh, animal products. Uh, I can't. Yeah, so
2: the article goes on yeah. for a while. Wow. But um we're we're going to leave it there this week. I just I wanted to treat you to that because Thanks. Because
1: boy, that's fun. Um Victorians, so, man. Like they Yeah. Wild. What are they doing? If any what Victorians are, are listening. What are you doing? What, what um, What's that about? But yeah,
2: you know, you see them. I there are definitely some in the neighborhoods here in gardens and stuff, yeah. but yeah. I never knew that that's what they were. No, I mean, I knew that they were ornamental and I was like, Oh, it's a class ball, but I never knew that aspect of their history. So I, I appreciate I knew, that.
1: Yeah. I knew that they were like, I knew they were Victorian. <laughs> you did? Oh yeah. Like I, like they were gazing balls. Is mm. like how. Mm. Scrying. I don't know. No, not that. No, I
2: know. Just like not, look, not, looking into them.
1: No, Nothing witchy. No, see, no. See by, see the joy that's down in my heart above.
2: Where? <laughs>
1: it's down in my heart. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>
1: and get ready to get spooked. So now that we're all thoroughly warded, protected, and cleansed, we will be back next week with the inaugural Spooktober episode. The third year running. Wow. <laughs> Good thing the world I'm ready is still a get scared. <laughs> I'm gonna get scared. Good thing the world is still a terrifying place.
2: Yeah, um, I'd like to be scared in like I'm a not,
1: in a not real life less, kind of well in a, a less existential way. Yeah. Well, get ready for that, everyone. And you can Whew. find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. And if you haven't yet, how about leaving us some stars and review? If you leave us a review, might hear it at the top of the show.
2: Please and thank you. And you can also find us on social media if you like. On Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, you can find
1: us at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And you can find all of that plus merch and the opportunity to sponsor episodes over at our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Bye. Spooktober. Ooh. Bye.
0: This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective.
2: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at
0: archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.